This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is George McDaniel, former director of Drayton Hall in the Lowcountry, and he's written an interesting new book, Drayton Hall Stories, A Place and Its People. George, welcome to the journal. I'm glad to be here. George, before we get into our conversation, for folks who are new to South Carolina, Drayton Hall is on the Ashley River, uh, and I'll let you describe it for our listeners. Yeah, Drayton Hall is a historic site on, on the on the Ashley River, located about 15 miles up the Ashley River uh, from from Charleston. It was established as a plantation by John Drayton, uh, who purchased the land in 1738 and subsequently a- added to it. And during the course of his lifetime, owned over 76,000 acres with lands as far south as uh, St. Mary's River near Georgia. Drayton Hall itself was a plantation of about 800 acres. And about in the early 1750s, he completed the main house known as Drayton Hall. And it's an, it's an icon of colonial American architecture. It's the first fully executed Palladian uh, house in, in America. And, and by Palladian, what do you mean? I mean by, by those the, the styles that emulated the architectural designs of the Italian Renaissance architect Andrea Palladio, who practiced in and around uh, Venice. We're talking about columns. Oh, very much so, yeah. And this was the first house with a two-story portico, which was unusual. And and John Drayton, we think he was the designer, he borrowed that design from Andrea Palladio, especially Villa Carnara, located outside of Venice, uh, in completed in the mid 16th century. Do we know who the architect was? No, we don't know who the architect was. We don't know who the craftsman was. We don't have any surviving written records of the construction or design of Drayton Hall. I used to make it a practice to give tours of Drayton Hall, and when I would have kids on my tour, sometimes they'd be kind of yawning and not paying much attention, and I would tell them I was going to make mistakes during the course of my tour, and can they catch them? And so I would say that we have uh, the videotape of the construction, 18th century construction of Drayton Hall, but we don't have the audio, so we don't have the names of the architect or the builders. (laughs) And... The front portico is iconic, and as you know, I found out on my last trip to Williamsburg that the facade that they're building to their architectural museum is going to replicate the front portico from Drayton Hall. It caused a lot of <gasps> deep breaths at the trustees' meeting when Ron Hurst made that announcement, but it, it is an incredible building, and it has survived all this time because of the care for so many years that the Drayton family gave it. That's right. There were a number of things that make Drayton Hall uh, rare. One one element was that it was owned, continuously owned by the Drayton family, um, descendants of John Drayton, until 1974, when it was acquired from the Drayton family by uh, the National Trust for Historic Preservation, the state of South Carolina, um, and the Stark Charleston Foundation, those three local, state, and, and national organizations came together to say that it was preserved as a stark site into the future. One of our former U.S. senators had a key role in that, did he not? That's right. Fritz Island played a major role in that, and so did the directors of Archives and History, um, and also the um, Charles Lee, and also Fred Brinkman from uh, the Department of Parks, Recreation, and Tourism, and Frances Edmonds from Historic Charleston. Frances Edmonds plays a key role, and she's she's uh, cited in my book. In fact, when I interviewed Peter McGee, who was with the Historic Charleston Foundation at the time, was a, was a practicing attorney in Charleston. And I asked him about Drayton Hall's preservation, and he said, George, I can give you a two-word answer. And I said, what is that? And he said, Francis Edmonds. And and he, he, Francis Edmonds, organized a strategy to see that Drayton Hall was preserved. The, The Drayton family wanted to see it preserved 
but they didn't have the they didn't have the ends to the preservation world that Francis did, and she was a sort of the the the, the strategist, uh, so that the National Trust and State of South Carolina and the Stark Charleston Foundation acquired it. Well, at that time, uh, I was teaching a course in colonial America, and Frank Drayton was one of my students, uh, and this was before the transfer had been made, and he, we could take college students on field trips back in those days. So we just piled into cars. It was it was a, an upper division class, about 20 kids. We piled in, and we all went to Drayton Hall and had a, had a tour led by Frank that was, was absolutely incredible. And we, got, of course, were able to walk to places that folks aren't allowed to walk <laughs> now. But in addition to the house, the family had an incredible cache of historic documents and records which also have been preserved. And Frank's senior thesis was doing uh, an exhibition at the South Carolina Library in the rec- used to be the Olin D. Johnson room where you did research, mm-hmm. where they had museum cases. And he took those and he created a story of a, with about 10 display cases of the grand tour of three generations of the Drayton family to Europe. Again, something for a young undergraduate to be able to do, to, to delve into that family archive and then share it with others was incredible. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that, um, and because we've always tried to maintain very good relationships with the, with the Drayton family, and Frank is an illustration of that. He serves on a board, mm-hmm. uh, and the Drayton family have donated pieces of furniture, documents and other things, photographs, to Drayton Hall so we can better educate the public uh, about Drayton Hall's history. And Frank is in, is in um, my book. Um, I wanted to interview a range of people about the story of Drayton Hall. It's a different kind of book in that it's not just my writing history, not a narrative history, mm-hmm. but instead I interview about 50 people, Drayton descendants like, like Frank Drayton, um, African-American descendants, architects, engineers, board members, donors, tourism leaders. So to get their perspectives on Drayton Hall, and one of the best interviews is from Frank Drayton, who remembers Drayton Hall as a home. That was a place in the country where he is, when he was a boy, they would go out there and enjoy the place. And um, I, was, I was really concerned that people see Drayton Hall today just as an historic site, somehow sacrosanct, but it was also a home. And um, I wanted I wanted people to to understand that. And when I interviewed a, a African American Richmond Bowens who was born at Drayton Hall in 1908, he referred to it as home. And so I was wondering how he, as a black man, didn't own the place but referred to it as home. Was he just putting me on? I'm a Southern white man, so was he just saying that, being polite? So I asked him to draw a memory map of Drayton Hall. And on the memory map, he drew about 15 house sites of his grandparents, his uncles, his aunts. And so you can, you got to, you got to see the, the site as he remembered it. And, and you can see how highly populated the site was by members of Bowen's extended family. So when he was growing up, uh, you know, in the 1910s and, and 20s, that, that was home. That's where his grandparents lived, right down the road from him. And there was a member of the Drayton family who lived in that house until the late 1960s. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I have heard from from visitors, and I know this is why Drayton Hall is managed the way it was, why did they leave that paint from the 19th century? Why did they put all this fancy Chippendale furniture in here? The option that the National Trust decided to to take was to preserve the house in situ as it had been a home for, what, five, six generations of the Drayton family. That's that's right. And that was Aunt Charlotta Drayton that you were referring to. Um, And she was a preservationist before it became popular. Uh, And she she, she lived in, 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 in Charleston and would come out to Drayton Hall and would stay there for two weeks or so and, and then come back for another two weeks later on and so forth. But So she just was not going to change it. And that's why you see at Drayton Hall change over time. And that's where it's different from Monticello or Mount Vernon that have been restored to a specific period in time. Instead of visit to Drayton Hall, you see change over time. And to me, that continuity of history 
gives a visitor a clearer understanding of what the place is and also what history is. You don't, you're a historian, you don't stick with 18th century only. I mean, you also deal with the 19th century, 20th century, and now we're shaped by, by time. Absolutely. There's no electricity. There never has been. Mm-hmm. It is not plumbed. There's no... Uh, so you water. don't have... It's not air-conditioned mm-hmm. or anything like that, uh, which... And so many historic restorations, as you've mentioned, some wonderful ones, uh, Colonial Williamsburg, they're all climate-controlled. Uh, if you To put in electricity and plumbing, you're messing with the historic fabric of the place. You are. You are. Can you imagine putting in... Where, where do you put your registers? Where do you put your ductwork well, to make any of that? Where do you well, run your electric wiring? You, you, and it's, it's been that way for so long. So if you started adding air conditioning, as they found with other historical homes, you're introducing something foreign, and there can be unintended consequences. Um, Decatur House in Washington did uh, introduce uh, HVAC and developed mold. So that's something you want to avoid. And Drayton Hall has remained pure in that regard. Well, John Larson, who's one of my former students who for many years was in charge of the grounds and the buildings at Old Salem, made a statement. He said, every act of historic restoration is an act of destruction. Mm -hmm. And he tried his best that they was very limited with what they did at at Old Salem. Mm -hmm. But Drayton Hall is the pure example Mm -hmm. of that. And one of them is... The Grand Entry Hall, which you walk in it today, you somebody who knows 18th century, and look at, where did that green come from? That doesn't look like 18th century. But you had the paint experts at Williamsburg tell us what it used to be. That's right, yeah. And that's where the paint research is, is so important. So at um, Colonial Williamsburg or, or you know, also at Mount Vernon, you can see the colors of the 18th century, which were more vibrant than we than we often give them credit for. And at Drayton Hall, a paint conservator from Williamsburg, Susan Buck, did research there, and she found that in the stair hall, in the other rooms too, the walls are now this Prussian blue, were originally um, painted a a kind of a a cream color. And in the stair hall, all of the the mahogany balustrade that's now just beautiful mahogany, but but in the 18th century, that mahogany balustrade, that's the banister and the railing, uh, also all the wainscoting, that was stained an orangey Chinese red. So it contrasted against this cream-colored wall, and she knows of no colonial interior that had that kind of color scheme. It, it, would, have, it, it, it would have been eye-popping. I was going to say, it would be very striking. But then somewhere along the line, a Drayton's decided to, they'd rather have the mahogany, and they painted the hall green. Well, Prussian blue. They Prussian, Prussian blue. Yeah. George, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with George McDaniel about his book, Drayton Hall Stories, A Place and Its People. Well, let, let's talk about the people. But before we talk about the Drayton Hall people, well, you are one of the Drayton Hall people. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about George McDaniel. Where are you from? How did you get into history? And what are some of the things that shape your views of history? Well, I'm from Atlanta, and I come from a family of storytellers, so um, uh, I guess I just, I just come by it naturally. I went to school in Atlanta and then went to Sewanee uh, and graduated from there and had really good professors, especially in history and also in French, French and history. And I took my junior year abroad in Paris, studied at the University of Paris, and that was my first, sort of, first experience abroad uh, and helped me develop a wider worldview. And then I taught school in, in Atlanta at the Levitt School, taught history in French, and then joined the Peace Corps and was in uh, Togo, West Africa, and in a village where I was the only English speaker. I spoke French uh, tout le temps all the time. Then had the misfortune to be drafted out of the Peace Corps. And what year was this? That was in 60. I was drafted in 69. Okay. And went in the Army in 19, 1969 in January. And because I'd been in the Peace Corps, I couldn't go to officer's candidate school. I couldn't even go to non-commissioned officer's school. And so I was assigned to the infantry 
and I uh, was with the 1st Infantry Division between, uh, we operated between Saigon and Cambodia. The and big red one. Big, big, big red one. And we did a lot of reconnaissance and force um, and then came back. And then I went to Brown University and got a Master of Arts in Teaching. And I taught in public schools there. And I had children who were going on to Ivy League schools, the Seven Sisters, but also had children in the same history class, students in the same history class, who couldn't even write a paragraph. And where, where was this? That was Hope High School in Providence, Rhode Island. Okay. And that shaped my teaching because I began using buildings, landscapes, objects, because they couldn't access the, the standard history book, so they didn't have any history. And then I went on to take my PhD from Duke and became very interested in oral history because drawing from my teaching experience, Vietnam experience in Africa, and, and to some extent in France, I wanted a, a kind of history that was more inclusive and um, not just the, 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 the standard history saga. And we'd go out and create history um, from, from people who, as one African-American said, wore the shoe. So I was, again, doing a lot of work in, in, the, in, in that history and then got a fellowship with the Smithsonian, which opened this whole world of working with museums and then work with museums and work with the Atlanta History Center in the 1980s and then got this job in 1989 with Drayton Hall. And you were there for 25 I, years. I was there for 25 years. I was. I, was, I like working at Drayton Hall, and, and some people maybe put off our plantation, but think, oh, that's slavery-based, but so much of the South was slavery-based. You can't, you can't scratch any institution in the South without coming across slavery and the racial you know, components. And so here, here's an opportunity. My vision was to use these plantations, these historic sites as ways to bring people together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's, that's what I, we tried to do in our public programs, our education programs. And then this book is the same way. I, I interviewed a range of people to lift up people's voices so that we could hear from other perspectives. Now, I like the idea of telling stories. Uh, I've had the pleasure uh, of hearing you make a presentation here in Columbia about a month ago um, when I first got the book, which I then read cover to cover. And you did cover a range of folks. And you you mentioned Richmond Bowen. You want to talk a little bit about him? Well, I will. Richmond Bones, as I said, was born in Drayton Hall in 1908, um, lived there, and then worked in Charleston, uh, and then moved to Chicago, and then moved back um, in the early 1980s, and uh, went to see Charlie Drayton, whom he had grown up with, and, and asked about working at Drayton Hall as a gatekeeper and ticket ticket salesman, and, and he did. And Richmond Bowens was a was the ambassador for Drayton Hall, his first one that, that you met when you came into, into the site. And I got to know him and did a lot of oral histories with him. And I remember one, and it's in, it's, this is all in the book, but I remember talking to him. One of my friends in the Peace Corps in Togo was a traditional doctor and would make roots and herbs and so forth to, to, to treat people. And my father was a doctor. So I would go on rounds with Monsieur Daniel. And when talking to Richmond Bowens about medicine, he pointed to the woods and say, th- said, this was our drugstore. And he knew how to make roots and herbs and so forth. And so I began asking him and videotaping him and then got Charles Joyner involved. And we videotaped um, uh, Richmond Bowens as as we excavated his house, which he gave um, stories as he gave stories about um, the um, artifacts that, that were uncovered. That was on the on the History Channel. And then he, in turn, introduced me to other African-American descendants and that's who's in the book. These other African American descendants who, who, who remembered Drayton Hall well and told me stories that you would not learn by architecture, by archaeology, that don't make the written records, but they're in people's memories. And I think that's one one of the purposes of this book is to encourage people to record their own family stories, their own community stories, to, 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 to because that's ephemeral. It's going to be lost if we don't record it. George, the stories 
you said you learned things about Drayton Hall that was not in the architectural evidence, was not in the in the documentary evidence, but it was in the minds of the folk who had lived there in the early 20th century. Give us some examples of those. I'm going to uh, give you some specific examples, and I th- let me just say first of all, I think that the, the getting these stories, as you know well, is so important because we we learn about family moments, we learn about why Drayton Hall was preserved and not sold. Uh, we learn about why it wasn't furnished. Um, we learn about efforts of, to use a historic site for racial uh, conciliation. Uh, there, these stories combine like pieces of a, of a mosaic um, that individually may be small, but put them together and you can see a picture of a place. And that's what I was, I was trying to do. Some specific examples were like Drayton Hall was a home. And so for Molly and Ann and Frank Drayton, whom you mentioned earlier, it was a home of a place in the country. And when they went out to Drayton Hall being kids, what did they do? They looked for silver that they knew was buried during the Civil War. <laughs> they knew it was, it was buried in the barn and the basement and so forth. And Frank Drayton had his birthday party there. And planes flew overhead uh, uh, from the from from the uh, airport, and he thought they were flying over. His parents had organized that, especially for his birthday. <laughs> Those kind of the moments may be small, but they re- illustrate Drayton Hall as a home. And then uh, from from African Americans, we learn, for example, from uh, Lucille Blunt, who lived as a tenant. Her her grandparents were, were were tenants there in the in the 1950s. She lived there for about five or six years, and she remembered how close she was to her grandmother. She describes her grandmother's cooking and the house they lived in, and so forth. And she she says that when my hand hurt, her hand hurt. When her hand hurt, my hand hurt. They were that close. And one time, her grandfather was sitting down at the dinner table, and she pulled the chair out from under him. Bam, down the floor he went. And so she knew there had to be consequences, and grandmother looked at her and got a pine needle straw, just a pine needle, and twitched her leg with it. Not a switch, not a a hairbrush, not a belt, a pine needle. That's all it took because they were so close. Those kind of things you would never learn by archaeology, but if they, they, they illustrate family values, and that's what I was I was getting at. Another black woman was very much involved in the civil rights movement, inspired by her mother, who was at Drayton Hall. So these kind of stories um, are, are are in the book. Well, uh, you mentioned that Richmond Bowen had had done a, a drawing of the many buildings. Those buildings are no longer there, is that correct? No longer there, and and so the public comes today and sees the, a, a forested landscape and thinks, well, that's the way it was, but it wasn't. He remembers a cleared landscape populated by tenant houses. So that memory map helps us envision a Drayton Hall of the 20th century. Another thing that's, that's important about this book is that I accent the 20th century um, the recent history, uh, the story of its preservation, the story of other, of other people who were there who remember Drayton Hall. 18th and 19th century may be found in the written records or that kind of history has been written or, or still being written. But this ephemera that I talked about is going to be lost unless it's recorded now. Well, you also, there were farm buildings on the place, a barn, a blacksmith shop, those are all gone as well. All gone. Oh, see, that, there's nothing left there. So, uh, the, and then the African-American cemetery is still there. And when I, one of the things that I did with Richmond Bowens, who remembers uh, traditional uh, burials there, he remembered that when, um, when persons were buried there in, in the African-American cemetery, there were no stones because there were no gravestones because you had to buy those, and no stones in the low country. Um, so they used wooden markers. But then they would decorate the grave with things that had belonged to the deceased, a, a, a practice that had been tracked tra- back to Africa. And I videotaped his recollections of those, of, those, of, of those artifacts. And that cemetery is still there and it is preserved. It preserved, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we had, a, 
Well, I asked Philip Simmons to design a gate and formed a committee. All right. Now, we need to tell folks, because Philip Simmons has been gone for a while oh, now. Oh, Philip, Philip Simmons is a renowned Charleston blacksmith, African-American, whose work now is at the Smithsonian Institution and also at the, at the Charleston International Airport. And I asked him to design the gate because he was well known for designing Charleston gates for, for houses in, in downtown Charleston. And I formed a committee, black and white, Drayton descendants and African-American descendants. And Rebecca Campbell and Catherine Braxton said, let's not have a gate. Let's have an open arch so the spirits of our ancestors can go back and forth. People can go back and forth, no enclosure. And that's why the, we see an arch there that Philip Simmons designed and not a gate. Well, wow. Okay. Very, very interesting story. Now, I'm driving in for a first-time visitor, um, driving down that alley. Is it historic? The uh, the alley is, is, is very historic. I mean, that, that was part of the initial design. Um, and you drove straight from, from, from the Asher River Road, which is Native American trading path. You drove down to Drayton Hall. You looked through Drayton Hall from the, from the, from the alley onto the Ashley River. It was well now, conceptualized. But when you come into Drayton Hall, you're really coming in to the back side because like the other houses on the Ashley and the Cooper, they face the river. Uh, yeah, that, that was that was a long-standing view that that was the back. And then now, thanks to recent research that has been conducted, we found that, 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 the, that the reason why the portico is not facing the river is towards the Ashley River because that... It really was the front of the house. I mean, the, 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 the view, to the, the side facing the road was the front of the house. Um, the Asher River, unlike the James and the Rappahannock and, 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 and other rivers in Virginia, the Asher River is more, um, is more narrow and tidal. And so it was used to carry freight back and forth. Uh, if you wanted to go to Charleston, you went by horseback um, or, or by carriage. Because you'd have to depend on the tides. If you've been on the Ashley River in a boat and you're trying to go up the Ashley River and the tide's going out, you've got a problem on your hands. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So the only river that really has great flow going into the Atlantic, it's not the Ashley and the Cooper, it's the Santee. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. It's one of the great rivers. Yeah. Yeah. But it has no port. That's, that was, that's the irony. Yeah. It has no port. It has no deep water port. Frances Edmonds was gone, so you didn't get to interview her. No, I didn't get to interview her, so I interviewed Peter McGee and Patty McGee, who knew her well. Both of those are fixtures in terms of historic preservations, in Patty's case, historic gardening in Charleston. Uh, Patty was on the Governor's Mansion Foundation for many, many years. Uh, Peter on the Historic Society Board, South Carolina Historical Society Board. So let's get their views on what happened at Trayton Hall. Yeah, and, and Peter tells a really interesting story about Drayton Hall's preservation. It's the first time that we've seen that in, in print, his story about Frances Evans and her key role in seeing that, uh, that Drayton Hall was acquired by the National Trust and by the state of South Carolina. The Drayton's, for reasons that we described earlier, had wanted to see it preserved uh, and in fact, Charlie Drayton describes in the book that he got an offer from a developer for it to be purchased and, and turned into a golf course. And that was going to be the clubhouse. And, and the main house would be a clubhouse. And he turned it down forthwith. I mean, bam, he just turned it down because that was not what he wanted. So the Draytons were, were preservationists, but they did not have the wherewithal or the access to see how it could be preserved. And that's where Francis Edmonds was played such a, such a key role, and Peter McGee and Patty McGee and others really stepped forward too. And I guess the lesson for that is that everybody has a place in their community, maybe the church, the school, or downtown, the main street, or something that warrants preservation. And if they can do it, why can't you? And Francis engineered 
a gathering that was at Drayton Hall that was key. And you want to talk about that? She did. She and Peter McGee had already devised a strategy, and they knew that the state was on board, but they needed national help. And so, so Francis devised a strategy so that when the National Trust met in Charleston in 1972, she organized it so that the trustees and other people of means uh, of the National Trust went out to, to Drayton Hall, and they had, they had it all by themselves. They didn't go to Magnolia Gardens. They didn't go to Middleton Place. They only went to Drayton Hall, and they loved it. Drayton still owned it. And so on the way back, when they got back at their hotel, they were, they were discussing their, their, their visit, and uh, they were talking about how much they really loved Drayton Hall, and and Francis or others said, "Well, guess what? It it may be available, you know, for preservation." And of course, immediately they jumped like a trout and said, "Oh, is that right? Maybe the National Trust could do something about it." So it was th- their idea mm-hmm. that Francis had had, uh, had 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 conceptualized to start off with. And of course, it is. An incredible sight. It is. George, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with George McDaniel about his book, Drayton Hall Stories, A Place and Its People. George, when you, you came there 20, actually more than 25 years ago now, you, you helped to get off from the ground pretty much. Did you not? I, I did. I built on a, a firm foundation. I, you know, there were other. I mentioned Peter McGee and Patty McGee. It was a good staff, and Tish Galbraith, who's a previous director, she's in the book, and asked you know for her thoughts about the, the site, and she helped it stand up for, for, for integrity, and she wanted the site to to be preserved and not restored to an earlier period, and so did others. Art, but then, Art, Art, let's stop there because there was a debate about. What to do, and I think that's an important part of yeah. the story. There, there was a debate about what to do with the site. There were those who thought that, well, Drayton Hall was such a grand house in America in the 18th century. Why leave this, you know, this post Civil War paint, the, the plaster work that's not that good from in the late 19th century and 20th century, and other elements that that. Shabby is too strong a word, but I think that may have been the word used. We need to restore it to its 18th century glory. And to it, was, sh- it was a little bit bedraggled. How about that? Bedraggled, bedraggled. And so we need to show it, you know, so it's comparable to Mount Vernon and Monticello and these other grand houses uh, of, 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 of Virginia and New England. And, of course, that was pretty much the modus operandi of historic preservation in the, in the 1970s. The, in, the, in the 1970s, you restore it to its founding period. All hail to Chippendale. <laughs> you, you said it well. House, house beautiful. House beautiful. Make, make it beautiful. And there was a serious debate about that. Uh, since the National Trust owned the owned the site, they had purchased the the, the, the property. Uh, they were the decision makers, but they were um, major, um, you know, historians and, and, and architects who who came to, who were gathered together, and represented from the Stark Charleston Foundation and others. And they, after considerable debate, came together and decided, no, let's leave it alone. Well, Which was a radical decision for the for the time. No other site in America had followed that approach, and also not to furnish it because it did not have heat, air conditioning, and so forth. So to leave it unfurnished, to show it bare, and I think that decision was a wise one. Not only do you show continuity over time, and good uh, good guides, uh, good tour guides can help us understand that, but you also it serves as a as a as a stage for the telling of a story. And so much of history, as you well know when you teach or when you write, is a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, objects, furniture, and other, they, they're like magnets. You've got to, well, who's this? Who's in that painting? Who's this? What's this piece of furniture? Well, that's important, but it also takes up time. 
But when you don't have that, you, 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 you can tell the story about the people and the place in ways that you can't in a furnished house. And I, I think it also gives authenticity to the, to the site. Well, and the house was in the Drayton family from its beginning until the 1970s. But the transfer from one generation to the next was not exactly smooth. Let's talk about the first John Drayton and his son, William Henry. <laughs> Yeah, um, we, John Drayton had several children. One of those was William Henry Drayton. His oldest son was William Henry Drayton. He had several wives. John Drayton had several had, wives. Had too. several. They, they they died. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't. He, he didn't. He was not Bluebeard. No, no, no. He was. He was. They, they, but uh, his oldest surviving son was William Henry Drayton, who was a leader in the Revolutionary War here in South Carolina, and died in service to the to the nation. Um, in the Continental Congress in, in Philadelphia in, in 1778. And by, by right, maybe John Drayton should have left it to, to William Henry's heirs. It was his, his, William Henry's son was John Drayton and became governor of, of the state of South Carolina and founder of the University of South Carolina. But he left it to his second, or he left it to his wife, and then his wife sold it to uh, the second oldest son, Charles Drayton, um, and who from from whom the subsequent owners are, are descended? There was some controversy about that at, at at the time, and and he may have done that because he and he died in 1779. Because at that time, as you well know, you don't he didn't know which way the Revolutionary War was going to go. Mm-hmm. His son Charles was in the was in the Patriot Army as a physician, so if the Patriots had lost. Then it could have been confiscated. So he left it to his wife as a more neutral entity. As I say, William Henry was not very happy with what he and his father had a very— Oh, they had a tenuous relationship. Yeah, they, they yeah, did. They, yeah. they did. Uh, he didn't really approve of wife number two. No, no. <laughs> uh, um, so any, anyway, it's, it's, it's one of those fascinating— American stories, and it's part of what you tell the that, story. That's right. The story, and of that's what I wanted, wanted to convey is that you, you know it, it was a home, and you see that, and that's why in the book there are photographs of wedding receptions there, mm-hmm. um, and in parties and so forth, and uh, and children with with the parents and grandparents and so forth. So you you see you, you see a site. Uh, sort of behind the scenes, it's not wasn't always this. By no means was it always a historic site, and so you you get to know the people, black and white, who made Drayton Hall possible. Well, you talked about a board. What is the board you're talking about? Drayton Hall is managed by the Drayton Hall Preservation Trust, which is a uh, independent five hundred one c three organization, and they lease it from the National Trust for Historic Preservation, which owns the property. Uh, but they, they, they have a, a lease, and on that board are, are 15 or 20 members. But by the bylaws, when I, when I, before I left, I made sure that the bylaws included that there be a Drayton descendant on the board and, an, uh, and a descendant of the African-American community. We wanted to avoid those kind of situations that some sites have encountered, um, Montpelier being the most I, recent I, I was example. I say the— the furor at uh, Montpelier yeah. in in Virginia, and uh, again, our listeners may not be keeping up with that in historic circles. But just in about two minutes, tell us what the problem is at Montpelier. Well, good news now is that problems have been resolved. Um, the the issue was that there was a separate board uh, organized for, for African American descendants. There were two boards: so, uh, the board of Montpelier. And then a board of African American descendants, and so I remember just reading about that. I thought, "That's how, how is that going to work?" Because of who does the director answer to? Who who makes final decisions? Did didn't work, uh, and that finally the, the Montpelier board dissolved the African American descendants board, fired key staff, and and so forth, and and they were they were dismissed. There was a huge furor about that. Now it's been worked out so that now the board has changed. They have merged with the African-American descendants group, if you will, 
and the uh, Elizabeth Chu has been rehired, and so has Matt Reeves, the archaeologist, um, and they have been re- restored. And so hopefully uh, Montpelier is on, a, is on a good path, and that's what I was trying to avoid, and others were trying to avoid at Drayton Hall. And that's why this you know, this book, that's what C. Van Woodward was talking about. You can't talk about Southern history and put black history over here and white history over here because they're so intertwined. Well, as our our late friend Charles Jarney used to talk about shared traditions in South Carolina, uh, how we, how all of us, how we eat, how we dance, how we speak, uh, there has been cultural interaction for more than 300 years. 300, 300 years. So that's what historic sites like Drayton Hall or Middleton Place, Magnolia, other sites have that opportunity to convey that those shared traditions. One of the things I found interesting about your book, as I always check about who published and how this happened, is that you had help and support from the South Carolina Archives and History Foundation. That's right. The South Carolina Archives and History Foundation played a key role in, in this, and they were they were a really good group to work with. In fact, donations were given to the foundation to a special fund, the Drayton Hall uh, Publication Fund, and then they in turn pay for publication of this book through Evening Post Books. And I went with Evening Post Books because they're they're um, a part of the uh, Evening Post Industries, which owns uh, the Post and Courier and other newspapers in in South Carolina and elsewhere. But they were local. I I knew them. I knew the editors. And uh, I I could, I I thought they they, they could believe in the book. And they also, I'd seen, talked to other authors uh, who had worked with Evening Post Books, got high recommendations from them. And I've been very pleased with Evening Post Books and also with the uh, South Carolina Archives and History Foundation. In fact, they asked me to speak uh, on on two occasions there, uh, one for for the preservation conference, which I was glad to do. Well, I think the fact that the organizations work together. And they really do. Their partnerships are so important. In reading your book, there are several stories that I'd like to, for you to elaborate on. One is the one of Charlie Drayton and Rebecca Campbell. Drayton Hall could help bridge the racial divide. Now, in this country of 2022, that sounds very hopeful. So let's chat about that for a moment. Well, you use the word hopeful, and it's, it is hopeful. And hopeful, hopeful is something you always strive for. You never achieve all of your hopes. And so we're certainly polarized. We see that increasingly so, maybe increasingly so here, here in, in America. All right. Now, we need to – Charlie Drayton is white, descent, yeah. a Drayton descendant. Rebecca Campbell is African-American mm-hmm. and a descendant from, from – and, 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 and Rebecca Campbell – uh, is a cousin of Richmond Bowens, and she traces through her family history uh, back to uh, 1670s when her ancestors arrived with the Draytons enslaved from Barbados. So Rebecca Campbell and Charlie Drayton represent founders of the South Carolina colony of, of the state of South Carolina. Wow. And, and so and they know one another I've asked them to participate in programs in Charleston uh, at the state level, at South Carolina Archives and History and Culture, and also at the National Trust for a stark preservation of the National Conference. Because if we're going to bridge this racial divide, we've got to talk with one another. doesn't mean that you agree with one another. Um, but we've got to talk, and by that way we can better understand one another uh, and, and develop some degree of empathy. Uh, so, so we can we can see where that person un- better understand where that person is coming from, and I think the historic sites and particularly historical plantations have that opportunity because they're inherently biracial to help promote those kinds of conversations, and uh, in, 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 whether in, the, in public programs and the tours and the education programs, and, and so forth. Well, you've got several other similar stories, uh, Rebecca Campbell. We've identified. Who is Catherine Braxton? Catherine Braxton is Rebecca's sister. Oh, okay. they, they, they grew up together. Well, the titles that you've given for these stories, the vignettes, I think that's a good term to use. Rebecca Campbell and Catherine Braxton, 
I could feel the spirit of my ancestors. Now, is that in reference to the cemetery, the the opening, the arch instead of the gate? It is, and in fact, it, it, it really in regard to Drayton Hall. They, they they were saying when they walk, when they walk the, the grounds of Drayton Hall, they can feel the spirits of their ancestors. Uh, and because when you look at Drayton Hall, you look at the construction of Drayton Hall, you look at the landscape. Uh, so much of that was shaped by African Americans. And particularly telling was again these two ladies. Let us come to the table. And they did this 2015 in New Jersey at Rutgers, right? That's, that's right. I invited them. I was invited to speak at a, at a, at a symposium on African-American history. And I said, I'll come on one condition, and that is I can invite uh, descendants from Drayton Hall. And I invited descendants of, of the Drayton family to join me, but they, they couldn't for uh, for a variety of good reasons, they, they could, could could not come, but so these two two sisters were, were with me, came with me, and I would show slides, and then ask them to comment on what that slide represented, and and so. All right, all right George, what I'd like you to do, you've got your book there, mm-hmm. open it to page eighty six, mm-hmm. and I would like you to read your question, and I'm going to reply for Rebecca and Catherine. Okay. Okay, here's a slide of an advertisement for the, for the sale of, quote, Negroes from the, quote, Rice Coast of West Africa at Ashley Ferry, a short distance down the Ashley River from Drayton Hall. What are your thoughts? Rebecca's reply, Charleston was one of the most powerful places for the enslavement. Sullivan's Island is where ships arrived, where Africans were put in pest houses to quarantine them. Charleston people enslaved many, many people. We have forgiven them. The Word of God says you've got to forgive. We'd like to move on. That's why I'm here. I'm speaking for the betterment of our country and the betterment of the generation that is here and the generations to come. And there was applause at that point. All right, continue. An exhibit at Colonial Williamsburg entitled, quote, Rich and Varied Culture featured the decorative arts in the American South including 18th century artifacts from Drayton Hall. Here is a branding iron, which was used to brand enslaved people. Before it was exhibited, we asked members of the Drayton family, along with you, what should we do? The Draytons agreed. Could you describe your answers? Rebecca, it should be shown. We have hidden too many things in our families. We have hidden them in our churches, and we've hidden them in America. It needs to be known. The truth must be spoken. Catherine, I don't have any problem with showing this, but when I see it, I hurt. Imagining that my ancestors were branded like cattle. I'm still in the healing process, and that's why I do what I do. I want others to understand what happened. It really happened. We have to get through it. But in getting through it, there needs to be some healing. It's a process, and we have to get going. This is an image of a, lo- of a live oak tree in the curve in the entrance lane in front of Drayton Hall, maybe three to 400 years old. If this live oak could talk, what questions would you ask? Catherine, were any of my ancestors hung on this tree? For what reason? There may have been many, quote, reasons. Maybe they could not comply with doing a task or whatever. Rebecca, I believe that some were hung on that tree. They might not have done anything to deserve it. Maybe the owners just didn't like how they looked. Hang him. You know, it's always you don't didn't do the job right or you didn't follow directions. It's because I didn't like your attitude. Hang him. This is a shard of an 18th century colonel ware or low-fired pottery derived from an African, West African tradition brought to colonial South Carolina and found by archaeologists at Drayton Hall. When you look at an object like this, what questions come to mind? Catherine, I want to know if my ancestors used anything similar to this. What did they prepare? Was it a water jug? Was it something to prepare food in? Rebecca, I have a different version if I were enslaved, I'd be tired at the end of the day. Get out a toddy. Get high. 
sleep until it's time to go back to work the next morning. That's what I'd use it for. Okay. Here is the Asher of a Road. Today, a national scenic highway that passes by Drayton Hall. What questions might you ask of it? Catherine, I'd like to know if my ancestors used this road to go to church. They were religious people. When freedom came, they and other freed slaves founded the Springfield Baptist Church, still located on Ashley River Road. Rebecca, my grandfather, Willis Johnson, Jr., used that road to leave Drayton Hall, where his parents had been enslaved, and walked to Charleston. There he bought land, and I was raised in his home in Charleston. Many of you may think this sounds silly, but start studying your genealogy and record everything you can from your oldest relatives. We regret we didn't record our great-grandmothers and grandmothers. What are the key messages you'd like for this audience to leave with? Catherine, slavery happened. Let us come to the table. We've got to heal and move on. Rebecca, I want to leave two words with you, love and forgiveness. George, that's probably a good place to to wind up. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off? I, I think that last interview that, that you selected really captures the the, 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 the tone both of the Drayton family and, and, and African-American descendants and all the people in this book. They really wanted people to, to examine history, to learn from history, but then to use it to better understand one another. As they said, as, as Catherine and Rebecca said, we've got to come to the table. And this book, I think, is a, is a, will help us come to the table. Well, George, I agree. George McDaniel, the author of Drayton Hall Stories, A Place and Its People, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. It's been my pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was a pleasure having longtime friend and professional colleague George McDaniel on the show. But more importantly, the stories that he collected and published in his book, Drayton Hall's Stories, A Place and Its People, are stories not typically found in history texts. It really is a story of the people who, for more than 200 years, lived on the same piece of land on the Ashley River in South Carolina, a very significant part of South Carolina's history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.